It's good to be with you this morning. Certainly grateful for the presence of each one. Glad that you're able to be here this morning. Glad that you made it important to you to be here this morning and appreciate the opportunity that's been given to me to share with you from my study of God's Word. And it's my desire, my, my hope this morning that you'll be able to take and find some practical application of God's Word in your life and that you'll be uh, built up and benefited from our time together in God's Word. I want to take just a brief moment to express appreciation to this congregation. I have uh, been blessed uh, to be able to uh, do evangelistic work uh, uh, as a primary occupation for uh, nearly 20 years now. And w one of the reasons uh, that I'm able and blessed to do that is this congregation is one of, of many that uh, supports me financially to do that work, to be able to do that work. And I consider it a great blessing and, and appreciate very much that you have uh, helped to give me that opportunity and uh, we write a letter each year and try to express our thanks and it seems like a small thing to do but when we have the opportunity we want to uh, let you know how much that uh, you're appreciated and uh, what a blessing and, and privilege that we uh, uh, feel that to be to have that opportunity and uh, we strive to to express our thanks I guess most of all by by trying to be diligent in that work that you support us to do and so I uh, just want you to know that we're grateful and thankful for you. We, we thank of you and remember you in our prayers and, and hope that you will uh, remember us and, and, and the works that we uh, labor in and in your prayers as well. Um, this morning, I uh, chose for a topic of study, uh, a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9. If you want to grab your uh, Bible this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9, I... Uh, when asked to, to speak this morning, I begin, as I typically do, dialing through a, a folder of sermons and trying to look at maybe what I had uh, spoken on in times past when I had opportunity here, think about uh, what might be beneficial, maybe what I needed to, to think about and spend some time on, and, and in hopes that that might be beneficial to you as well. Um, I thought about what we need uh, as a church, what we need more of as a society, what we need more of in our homes and, and things like that. And uh, this particular outline uh, jumped out to me as I was looking through those notes and I began to go over it and, and maybe do a few revisions and things. And um, I hope that, that you'll find it profitable this morning when we talk about making peace. In Matthew 5, verse number 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And when we think about that statement, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that mean? We're going to try to break that down a little bit, analyze that a little bit this morning. And I, I think we'll be most benefited by the study this morning if we'll just look at our own lives, our own hearts, and ask ourselves if that uh, is descriptive of us, if it's things, something that we're concerned with, that we're concerned about, and that we uh, strive to be busy about. So let's start off by defining a few terms. I think the, the most core, the most critical term in that uh, particular verse is the concept of peace. And what does that mean? Um, peace is, is defined uh, as a state of tranquility. You know, we think of that in terms of uh, nations maybe and not having conflict between nations. Uh, exemption from the rage and havoc of war. Peace between individuals. Harmony, concord. Uh, security, safety, prosperity, uh, and that's the, the definitions given for that concept of peace. I think God's Word helps us 
better understand that concept and perhaps its own uh, best commentary, if you will. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 33, the Scripture says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And so when we think about what peace is, uh, we see that it's the opposite of confusion. It's on the other end of the spectrum from confusion. And that, that begins uh, to help us understand that, that concept of peace. And if we're trying to be a peacemaker, that we're trying to avoid confusion and chaos and disorder and disunity and all of those types of things. An interesting passage that speaks of peace is Mark chapter 4, verse number 37. The Bible records a time. It says, There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in, Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So to illustrate this concept of peace, think about what just happened here in this passage with Jesus. He's on a boat. He's asleep in the uh, rear part of that boat. And the violent waves crashing over, the, the Scripture records that that boat was taking on water. And the passengers felt like they were fixing to perish. They thought they were going to die at sea. And that was no doubt a frightening experience. And so they go and they wake up Jesus and they say, Don't you care that we're about to perish? We're going to die here. And he rebuked the wind and the sea and he said, There was a great calm. And so you contrast that imagery of those waves just violently beating on that ship and filling it up with water to the point that it's about to sink. And then just a calm, glassy sea after that. And if you keep reading in that context there, after this happens, these individuals are extremely afraid at what they just witnessed. They thought they were afraid when they thought about dying, and then when Jesus commanded the wind and the sea to be calm, and it was, then they were really afraid. And they, they understood that this was no common man, this was no common individual that spoke to them. You know, when we talk about peace this morning, there's a lot of distinctions that can be made. For time's sake, we're going to narrow down our study a little bit. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And certainly we could spend a lot of time talking about inner peace and the inner peace that Jesus offers and, and peace of mind, peace of heart, and things like that. And and certainly that is available through Christ, and the Scripture has a great deal to say about that and encourage you to uh, study on that and look into it. But the peace that I want us to focus on this morning, when we think about making peace, we find in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 50, it says, Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. And that's just about as simple a statement as you can find. Jesus says we could talk about that salt and we could talk about the seasoning and all that and, and what's meant there. But we have that statement and he says, very simple language, have peace one with another. And that's just a straight command from Jesus. A simple statement that he makes. And I want us to think about that command, that instruction that Jesus gave his followers and think about that coming from the same voice that commanded the wind and the sea to be calm, and they were calm. When he told the wind and the waves and the sea to be still, they obeyed his voice. 
and yet we will disrupt peace and we'll promote chaos and disorder and havoc for the smallest little thing, matters of opinion, things that are very insignificant, and we will forfeit and disrupt peace. And we have that simple command from Jesus to be at peace one with another. Christ is the personification of peace. He, he exemplified and, and showed peace in, in his life and his teachings. Um, and Ephesians 2 uh, gives us that uh, ultimate application of that. Speaking of Christ, it says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And so when you think about what's being taught in this passage of Scripture, you have a dual application of Jesus Christ as a peacemaker. You have this group of individuals identified as known as Jewish people, and you have this group identified known as Gentiles. And they have something between them, something that's separating them. In this case, what we call the old law, the Old Testament. And those Jewish individuals were instructed of God not to mix in with the world, to be separate from the world. And they weren't to marry with, with the Gentiles, and they weren't to associate and be involved in the unholy things that the Gentiles were often and frequently involved in. And so they had this separation. There was two distinct groups of people. He says twain. There was two of them. And he says he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the, the commandments contained in ordinances. So he took out of the way what separated those two groups of individuals. And it says, of two, he made one. And so that's the example. That's Christ being a peacemaker. He is our peace. So he took the problem, the, the dividing factor out of the way, and made peace between Jew and Gentile. But then the more important, the more significant application of being a peacemaker is that Humanity, mankind, this one body of humanity was separated from God by their sin. You could go to a passage like Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that sin separates us from God. And in his flesh, in that same flesh, at that same time, at Calvary, he took that out of the way. He took sin out of the way between humanity and God, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. And so, he made peace between the Jew and the Gentile and brought them together in one body. He made peace between God and humanity in his body, taking away sin and, and, and bridging that gap that was created by sin. And so we have that example of Jesus Christ as a peacemaker. He's our peace. And so if we're going to be peacemakers, if we're going to be successful peacemakers, we look to Christ. We look to his example. He's our peace. He's uh, in his flesh. He accomplished that. He accomplished that at Calvary. And so there are several uh, lessons that we can take from that, applications that we'll make from that as we continue in our study. But think about what we know, what we're taught as Christians. Think about the simplicity of God's Word and how it will address so many of the problems that we're facing in the world today. And what are we going to teach our children about these things? Romans 3.23, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. If you look at that, he's referring back to that Jew and Gentile separation, and he's saying there's no difference. In Romans 10, verse number 12, he says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is over all, 
same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. And so again, it's reiterated that there's no longer that distinction. Acts chapter 17, 26, He's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And so that concept of unity of humanity is taught in the New Testament. And Jesus Christ as the peacemaker of humanity. In Matthew 5 and 9, when He said, Blessed are the peacemakers... He talks about the consequence of that. He says the peacemakers will be called the children of God. When you think about that, think about who is, is the benefactor in all of those statements. When you read those Beatitudes where uh, Jesus says, blessed is, is this group of people, and then he talks about the consequence of that particular attitude or action. He says peacemakers will be called the children of God. The question then is who's going to call them that? Luke chapter 20, verse number 34, Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. When we think about being the children of God, it's important to realize that it's going to be the Father in heaven that identifies us as His children. And that's what's important. That the Father identifies those that are peacemakers as His children. And so we need to seek out that characteristic and that quality. We need to realize also that the resurrection, that, that all will be resurrected. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, voice and come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. And so everyone's going to be raised up. When we talk about the resurrection and being the children of God and the resurrection, we want to be in the resurrection of life. We want to be identified by God as children of God. You know, in one place in John chapter 8, verse number 44, Jesus speaking to a group of Jews at the time, He said, Ye are of your father, the devil. For the lust of your father you'll do. And so this group of individuals, they, they went back to Abraham and they, they were in the physical mindset and they were saying, wait, wait a minute, what are, you, what are you trying to say here? Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, the devil is your father because that's whose work you do. And you know what he says of him in that passage? He says he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And so he made that contrast. And so the question is, whose children are we? And the answer that we have from God's word is that our works our life, what we involve ourselves in, the actions that we take, whose desires we fulfill and pursue, that's whose children we are. That's what, that's what draws that line. Another passage, a command to be at peace in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 10. The Scripture says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile or deceit, let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And so he talks about seeking peace and ensuing it. I think of that word ensue. It's defined as to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing or to run after. Uh, growing up, I used to go pheasant hunting fairly regular at this time of year and we would go out typically it's pretty cold that time of year at the top of the panhandle and I remember this one year 
in particular very well because I had, a, I had a pretty good beard going, I thought, and I just slapped the microphone there, but I had a pretty good beard, I thought, and Erica didn't think it was very good at all. She didn't like it. She still doesn't like any kind of, of beard. And so we have that discussion, but she had worn me down, and I had, in the spirit of the holidays and, and making peace, I had shaved all that beard off. And I remember the most I've ever regretted doing something like that because that, that next day we went out, we were pheasant hunting, and it was bitterly cold, and it was sleeting. And the only, I was all bundled up, and the only place I really recognized that cold was right, right where that beard had been, and I thought how nice it would be to have that beard. And long story short, it was my dad, my brother-in-law, Franklin, and myself, and we got skunked most of the day, and we were miserable, and we were about ready to quit. And we finally kicked up a pheasant. And my dad was on the far left, Franklin was in the middle, and it came up about the middle, and Franklin took a shot at that pheasant, and he, he kind of winged it, kind of clipped it. And I had a, a, a double-barrel shotgun, and I took a shot at it and completely missed. And that bird hit the snow. There was about six or eight inches of snow on the ground, and he started running, and I had one more shot, and I shot, and I could see my shot hit. It went right over him, and I missed again. And I took off in the snow running, following that little trail, because that bird was struggling to, to run through that, that foot of snow. And it found a little tuft of grass that had blown over, and it hid under that grass in the snow. And I ran over, and I, I tackled that bird. and I put it in my, my little pack, and I got back, and Franklin said, you know, I'm the one that shot that bird, right? And so we had a little debate about whose, whose bird that was because that was obviously that was the only one we were going to get for the day. And he took a shot at it, but my argument was I chased it down and caught it. I tackled it. It's mine. And I, I, I kept it in, my, in my, my little pack there to have those feathers, you know, on the side of, of our little hunting vest. And my point is, it's one thing to desire peace. It's one thing to look at a situation and say, you know, I wish, I wish those people over there could get along. And it's another thing to run it down and tackle it and, and make it happen. And that's the, the concept of ensuing something. He says, let people seek peace, but also ensue it. And you're not going to make peace by tackling anyone. But running it down and, and pursuing it is something that, it's, it's work. It's going to take some effort. And you're going to have to do more than just wish things were better than they are. Let him seek peace and ensue it. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, follow peace. And that's that same word, ensue. That same Greek word, follow, is rendered here in Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. In some of the church work that I've done over the years, unfortunately, what's described here in this passage is something that happens quite regularly. A disagreement, disharmony, disunion between a couple individuals goes along and it goes undealt with and nobody ever goes about and tries to reconcile and the bitterness builds up. And over time, you, you, you return to a situation, a congregation where there might have been many people and there's a lot less and you say, what happened? And, and when you begin to investigate, you found out that that root of bitterness had sprung up and many had been defiled. Many had, many had 
turned away and turned aside back to the world because of the lack of peace between believers, between those that should be following Christ. And I understand that whatever those disagreements were, were, were probably very significant to those individuals. And, and I, it's easy for someone that's not involved to look at something and, and label it petty or small. And, and it probably certainly didn't seem petty or small to anyone involved in that. But we're talking about the Lord's church and the salvation of souls. How many things can really get up there uh, and be counted as significant when you're talking about eternal things like that? It's going to have to be pretty major things to be able to be uh, in that category. We have reproof in the Scripture in Galatians 5 where he's listing the works of the flesh. Verse number 20, he says, idolatry, witchcraft, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. All those underlined words there, I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time on definitions. I've got those up there for you in order. Some of the definitions, it's not the exhaustive, the complete definition of each of those words, but look at the overlap. Contention, strife, wrangling, and envious and contentious rivalry, jealousy, partisanship, factionousness, dissension, division, dissensions arising from diversity of opinions and aims. And last one is heresy. Would you push an opinion of yours to the point of division? The answer is yes. That word's heresy. And you look that word up, you studied that word in the scripture. That's not a category that you want to be in. And so God reproves those types of attitudes. Those are works of the flesh. That's selfishness and selfish pursuits that, that produce those things. That word strife, it means self-promotion. And the seeking of your own self-interest. And that's not good for making peace. That's taking peace. That destroys peace. In Proverbs 13, verse number 10, the scripture says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. If you find yourself constantly in the middle of strife and contention, you need to ask yourself, are you the common denominator? If trouble follows you everywhere you go, maybe you're the trouble. And we don't ever want to think about that in those terms, do we? But that's a question that we need to ask, an examination that we need to make. In Proverbs chapter 6, <coughs> pardon me, verse number 16, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates that, the Scripture says. It's an abomination to Him, the Bible says. And yet it appears to be a light thing to so many. To go around and sow discord, to produce dis discord, to fan the flames of discord and disharmony and disunion. And that's not an identifying trait of the children of God. The results of those who are not peacemakers, but rather peacetakers. In John 3, verse number 12, 1 John 3, verse number 12, the scripture says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. And so we're warned about Cain and the way of Cain. Let's go back to that passage of, of story, that historical account of what Cain did. In Genesis 4, verse number 6, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why art thou 
art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. <coughs> and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And so Cain and Abel, uh, in the process of worshiping God, Abel's sacrifice being accepted, Cain's being rejected. Cain's upset about that. He's angry about that. His countenance, his face had fallen, and the Lord comes to him with reproof, with instruction. Why are you mad? If you do right, you'll be accepted. You see, this was a matter between Cain and God. But for whatever reason, in Cain's mind, it was a matter between Cain and Abel. Verse 11, it says, Cain's being punished, he's rose up, he's, he's slain Abel. God says, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I don't know what level of pride, what level of, of arrogance, what level of selfishness it was that it took for Cain to make Abel his enemy in his mind. But that's exactly what he did, wasn't it? He rose up against his brother. He saw his brother as his enemy. And so in the carnal, the worldly, the physical mindset, what do you do to your enemy? You eliminate your enemy and then you have peace, right? That, that's, that's the logic of that side of thinking. But he eliminated who he viewed as his enemy and he didn't have peace. He had a curse. He wasn't blessed. He was cursed. And he said, my punishment's greater than I can bear. He didn't have inner peace. He didn't have outer peace. He was a fugitive. He was a vagabond. What did he imagine? How, how did he think that that was going to turn out? What kind of peace do we pursue? What means do we pursue that peace on? So when we think about being a peacemaker, we need to strive to make peace. This morning... I want us to think about several things that we can do to make peace. And I want us to think about that starting in our homes, our families, whatever that is. We need to follow God's plan as a family. Remember, God's the author of peace. He's not the author of confusion. So if we want to have peace in our home, we need to follow God's plan for peace. That involves a structure of authority. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband's head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so, there's an authority structure. Christ is the head. All of the church should submit to Christ. In the home, there's an authority structure. The husband's the head of the wife, as the Scripture says. The children don't run the show. Ephesians 6, verse number 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There is a structure of authority that God designed, the author of peace designed. And if we want to have peace in our homes, 
And we have to follow God's design. And we can have peace in our home. In Luke 12, verse number 15, he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. I put this in here. I didn't want to go on too long. Peace as a family, and to have peace in your home, you need to have peace in your financial situation. And covetousness will destroy that. And if you don't have peace in that financial situation, it's going to be difficult to find peace at home. And if you can't find peace at home, then how in the world are you going to be able to go and help others make peace in their homes? And how in the world are you going to find time to go out and help those that are lost make peace with God through Jesus Christ? And so we've got to have peacemakers in the home. So don't look at this as a... As a a study that's, that's simply for those who labor in the, in the gospel and go out and, and do home studies with those that, that aren't Christians yet. We need peacemakers in families. We need peacemakers in homes so that there can be peace at home so that we can go out and we can spread peace and God's peace in the world around us. <clears throat> Aspire to be a peacemaker. What about your social life or your social media aspirations? What are those? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 9, he says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write unto you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do. So toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. So they had good brotherly love going on there. But listen to what he says. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Do you aspire to be a peacemaker socially and in your social media life? Because there's a lot of disunion and disharmony and discord that goes on in that realm. And you remember that that social media account, that's a megaphone that you have. And that you don't use megaphones to be quiet and lead quiet lives. You use a megaphone to be loud. And remember how loud that is when you put that out there on those social media accounts. And ask yourself, if you're being a peacemaker, if you're pursuing peace, if you're chasing down peace, if you're promoting peace, if you're a child of God, if you're seeking God's will when you do those things. That word, aspire, it's defined as to be ambitious. And so when we think about aspiring and, and being ambitious, and certainly when you take those words and you couple that with social media, you don't see this concept of quiet and peaceful lives, minding your own business and working with your hands, do you? But that's the instruction in God's Word. <clears throat> to be a peacemaker, we have to value relationships. What's important to you? What matters to you? What's of the greatest value? Consider Acts chapter 7, verse number 22, as Stephen's preaching his final sermon, and he rec recounts an instance where Moses was attempting this very feat it says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. 
For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? And so Moses is going out between these two Hebrews, and he's trying to make peace between them. In fact, that phrase, set them at one, that comes from a, a Greek word that's used 92 times in the New Testament. 89 times it's translated peace. One time it's translated quietness. One time it's translated rest. And then the other time it's this passage right here where it says he would have set them at one. He would have made peace between these men. That's what he was trying to do. And what's the logic that he did that from? The reasoning that he did that from? He says, you're brethren. You're brothers. Why are you doing wrong to each other? Whatever this matter was, and we don't know what it was, it wasn't as significant as the fact that they were brethren. And that's what he uses to try to be a peacemaker. Was he successful in that? Doesn't appear to be. Why was he not successful? I guess it had a little bit something to do with his attempt at making peace the day before where he killed that Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Because that's what they went to, wasn't it? What, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And, you know, that may have been a justifiable hand-to-hand combat, self-defense situation. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. But if we don't have peace in our homes, if we don't have peace in our lives, how are we going to help make peace with others? But if we are going to be a peacemaker, that's good logic. And that's the logic to do it from. Your brethren. What is this? And we see that same logic used in a successful way in Genesis chapter 13 and verse number 7 when Abraham does it. It says, There was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, the opposite of peace, I pray thee between me and thee and, my bre- and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen, for we are be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And so Abraham uses this same logic, this same mentality. He says, look, we're brothers. This isn't right. This doesn't make sense. There's no reason for us to have disharmony, discord, disunion, strife. And so he just puts the choice to Lot. Look, we can do whatever we want here. It's all right there before us. If you want that side over there, I'll take this side over here, or vice versa. And so that's the way, a simple solution to end strife. And it was based on the underlying value of that relationship that they were brethren. And that's how he went about and produced peace in that situation. If your brother wrongs you, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. 
Scripture says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. Do you think about that verse as a peacemaking passage? Because it ha- there's been a lot of times when it has not been used that way. But think about it. Read the passage. Understand the passage. Just go tell him between you and him. Keep that as small as possible. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. You see, it's a peacemaking passage. That's the motive of the passage. And if you're ever going about to do that with a different motive, then you're doing it wrong. But if your brother wrongs you, you don't go get advice from 45 other people in the congregation. That's not keeping it small. You have your instruction from God. Keep it small. Go to gain your brother back. And if that's not your concern, then don't do this because you're not doing it right. But if you do it right, it will work every time. Whatever that outcome may be. And there's, there's different outcomes that can come of that. But it will work as it was intended to by God. To be a peacemaker, we have to be willing to sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 7, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And so the Corinthians here are being rebuked, and they're suing each other in the court system. And listen to that language. He says, this is already an utter failure. This is a disgrace. You're brethren, and you're going, and you're suing each other in front of the world. And then you're going to go tell them, hey, you should follow Jesus. Hey, you need to have peace through Jesus Christ. He says, that's an utter failure. He says, why do you not rather accept wrong? And when we look to Jesus as our example of the great peacemaker, he's our peace. We find that he made peace at the intersection of pain and pain. At the intersection of hurt and hurt. He paid the ultimate price. He sacrificed to make peace. He abolished in his flesh the enmity. He took on him our sins to make peace. He allowed himself to be wrong. He made the statement. He says, no man can take my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. You see, he sacrificed to bring about peace. Are we willing to make sacrifice? Is peace important enough to you and I to make sacrifice? When we go to make peace, we, we get into some difficult situations because we read already in Thessalonians that we need to mind our own business. And so you have these situations where there's not peace and the need for a peacemaker. But you also have this instruction in God's word not to be a busybody, to mind your own business. And so how do you balance those things? And that's a difficult question, and it's a legitimate question to ask. You need to ask yourself that question. I ask uh, whom I consider to be a, a wise uh, elder in the Lord's church in one congregation. I said, how, how does a 
person balance that? And he gave me an answer that's helped me very much in, in endeavoring to be a peacemaker. He said, you always respect the authority that God has put in place. So to make sure that you're not a busybody in other men's matters, if there's not peace in a home, then you better make sure that you respect the authority in that home before you get involved in that situation. And you better look to that authority, whatever that, maybe if that's the husband, then you better make sure that you don't go about to be a peacemaker in a home and bypass the authority that God's put in place. If you're trying to be a peacemaker in a congregation and you see a situation and you say, this isn't how it ought to be, before you go and search yourself into that situation, you'll do well to check with the authority that God's put in place to see if, if that's something that you need to be inserting yourself into. And if you have a congregation with elders, then you are blessed and you're privileged and you have an authority that God's put in place there and you check with that authority. And that uh, concept will, will work wonders in helping balance that, that difficult question of when should I get involved and, and when should I uh, leave that task to, to someone else. And being a peacemaker, it's important to be able to keep a lid on things. It's not for the sake of, of keeping secrets, uh, of, of having knowledge that nobody else has. It's for the sake of limiting collateral damage of things. In Proverbs 17, verse number 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends or chief friends. And if you break up best of friends, you're not a peacemaker, you're a peacetaker. And you do that by running your mouth. And that's why it's important, as we noted earlier, to be quiet. To be a good peacemaker, we find that we often have to say less. In Proverbs 26, verse number 20, where no wood is, there the fire goeth out, so where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. And you can put that fire out by nobody repeating what's happened. No one continuing uh, to spread that tale. A good peacemaker has to concern himself with de-escalation. In Proverbs 15, verse number 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And you can't stir up anger and you can't turn the heat up on the pot and be a good peacemaker. You've got to, to de-escalate that situation. You've got to be able to lower the temperature in those situations. And what we find as we study this is that these are skills that can and need to be developed. They're not naturally occurring skill sets. In Proverbs 16, verse number 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so we see a, a great degree of this peacemaker concept and and the expectation of our Father in Heaven that to live peaceably even with those that are our enemies. In Proverbs 17, verse number 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. So apart, uh, in addition to de-escalation, recognizing things that are going to start a quarrel, things that are going to start a fight, and avoid those things. Don't ever let the water, once it starts, and you can think of an illustration like that, of perhaps a, a, a reservoir and that reservoir beginning to crack. 
Once that water starts coming out, you're not going to stop it until it's all out. There's too much there. There's too much. And that's where recognizing that and pulling the fuse, diffusing situations, uh, goes a long way toward being a peacemaker. It's a lot easier to prevent than to cure. And we need to seek those opportunities in being a peacemaker. We need to learn contentment because that's a big cause of a, a lot of the strife that we have between each other and in our homes. In 1 Timothy 6, verse number 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. So when we go back to this idea of trying to be a peacemaker and help others uh, attain peace, we've got to have it in our own lives, in our own hearts. And that's going to start with being content with such things as we have. And so we may need to evaluate our situation. And we may need to change our standards. We may need to change our definitions of things that we need versus things that we want so that we can get in a position and we can be content and we can have not only time but resources to help seek out and, and chase down peace between individuals. In Hebrews 13 and 5, he says, Let your conversation, your conduct, your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake thee. So it's important that we learn contentment because that's what it's going to take for us to have peace in our homes. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way as he leads into the chapter concerning love. And this is the only instruction that we have to covet something, that that word is used in that way. Desire spiritual things instead of physical things. Covet things that matter. Desire things that matter. And let that be your desire. And peace matters. And desire peace. And chase it down and pursue it. If you don't have peace in your home, desire it and chase it down and lay hold on it and get it. Because you need it. Your home needs it. The church needs it. Society needs it. To be a peacemaker, don't draw any new lines. In Luke chapter 11, verse number 23, Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And it couldn't be any more clear that Jesus drew a line in the sand, if you will. And he said, you're either with me or you're against me. That's the line. Who are you to draw a line? In Revelation 17, verse number 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And you need to get with Jesus. You need to line up with Jesus, and you need to let the lines that he drew be the lines that exist. Don't make new ones. In John 12, verse number 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. He draws the lines. Let the lines be the words of Christ. Let the lines be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't make new ones for political reasons or social reasons or economic reasons or any other reason. You're no one to make lines in a sense. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's drawn the lines. Make peace, we don't need more lines. In Romans 12, verse number 18, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And we have to understand that, that that peace is an equation, and it doesn't rely solely on one party. And so, sometimes it's, it's not attainable. 
And so we have, we have to understand, we have to be realistic in those expectations. Some of that's on us. And so if you're in a situation where there's not peace, you need to check yourself. You need to examine yourself in light of the scriptures that we studied this morning. And you need to say, is it part of this equation that lies in you? Have you done everything you can to have peace in your marriage, to have peace in your home, to have peace in your finances, to be a peacemaker in the congregation, to be a peacemaker in the community? Are you seeking that? Are you ensuing that? As much as lies in you, are you living peaceably? What seeds are you sowing as we wrap up our study this morning? In James 3, 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. Are you a peacemaker? Are you sowing the seeds of peace? and productivity and prosperity in the kingdom. Seeds that are eternal in nature. Seeds that actually matter. Are you sowing the seeds of discord and division and disharmony and disunion? In 1 Corinthians 3 9, we're laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You're God's building. We labor together with God. Blessed are the peacemakers. That word maker, that means to construct, to build. And so, you build something that wasn't previously there. And peace is not the naturally occurring state when humans are involved most of the time. It's something that has to be uh, attained. It has to be built. In Hebrews 11, verse number 10, speaking of Abraham, for he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. And God built the institution. Christ purchased the institution with his blood, the church. He slew the enmity in his flesh. He made peace. He is the head of the body that he reconciles men to God in the church. And we have the assurance in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And so it doesn't say that you won't have conflict. It doesn't, it doesn't say that there won't be difficulty. It says live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And that needs to be our goal. That needs to be our pursuit. And we need to have peace in our lives. We need to have peace in our hearts that only Jesus can bring. If you don't have that peace this morning... You don't have much, but you can have it through Jesus Christ. And this congregation stands ready to assist any who need to obey the gospel. If you need to be baptized into Christ so that you can be at peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The scripture says that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you can attain that peace with God through Jesus Christ this morning. And we'd encourage you to do that. If you've done that and you don't have peace in your heart, you don't have peace in your life, you don't have peace in your home. If you're not at peace with your brothers... Something needs to change. And if we can be of service to you in any way, please let that be known by having a seat on one's front pews while together we stand and sing.